IFM's annual international conference is coming up soon. Learn about the latest advancements in functional medicine research and what they mean for your practice. Join us June 4th and 5th for a reimagined online experience. I'll see you there. Visit aic.ifm.org for more information. On this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, we'll discuss a topic that's close to my own heart and practice, that's functional fertility and preconception. If we want to start shifting the trajectory of this conversation toward preventative measures to improve pregnancy health for a lifetime, pregnancy and reproductive health for a lifetime, it's gonna require more than one primary care provider. It's going to require nutrition professionals, health coaches, a community approach. Dr. Leslie Stone and Emily Ridbaum are joining us today to explore new ways to support fertility, preconception health, and a healthy pregnancy. Emily and Leslie, we're thrilled to have you today to talk about the intersection of functional medicine and preconception, and also your work on the Grow Baby Life Project. Welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. Happy to be here. It's such a delight to be able to talk to you about this topic, and I know that so many of my patients are wondering, how can they reduce any risk that they might have trouble getting pregnant later. I'd love to ask, what are some common conditions or risk factors you're seeing in your patient population that seem to impact fertility, uh, fertility potential, subfertility, the ability to get pregnant when you want to? Should we just pitch in? <laughs> okay. I We view fertility as an event. The, the, the emphasis on fertility is an event that should begin, you know, right out of the womb, basically, right? Because what we're trying to do is create the most resilient and healthful environment from the get-go. So what that means is, in contradistinction, that is look at how our own environment, our own U.S. national statistics look at obesity, our exposure to toxins, our um, insulin resistance, um, our sedentary lifestyles, our um, infection rates that might be inflammatory rates, autoimmune disorders, things that we have complete management capability over. We just need to take that moment to do it. One of the important pieces that we recognize is knowing when to, where to look and when to look. So the first piece that we think about is it's not just women's fertility, it's male fertility and their health as well. Um, It has in our population, in the U.S. population, it's about age too, because that poses a potential risk factor. Um, We think about the social determinants of health. Um, Where do you live and what are your toxic exposures like? And then, of course, the um, environment in which you've been raised, that um, what what kind of food practices do you have? What kind of um, nearness to good, healthy foods do you experience? Or are, there, are you in the midst of a food desert as well? Um, we think widely to even broader, as we get more technological support for these concepts, we think to what are your particular personalized um, issues? Could it be that we should be looking at your genomics as we are able to do so, so that we can personalize, perhaps you might have a particular need that needs support nutritionally and in a lifestyle manner. Well, and I, and I, thank you, Leslie. And I think that it's very easy for um, females, particularly to to bear the brunt of this burden. 
Um, <laughs> male factor infertility is not a diagnosable disease or a condition. To this day, it's not. Yet we know that male factor infertility can impact pregnancy rates anywhere from 20 to 70%, depending on where you are in the globe. You know, so I think this idea of the, the vacuum conversation that has emphasized primarily in the female court, um, really, we need to broaden that topic and broaden the conditions that are associated and the, the factors that do impact this time period so prevalently. Um, so beyond the diagnosable concerns that are rising in, in female infertility and can impact female infertility, those like endometriosis and PCOS, we also have to consider the high prevalency rate of things like birth control pills. Any type of conception protection or conception control, you have to consider the commonality of nutrients that become deplete in those situations where when, say you're not diagnosed with a condition that we know will directly impact fertility, so to say, or so to speak, we know that just simply the, the, the use of things like BCPs are dramatically impacting these micronutrient needs that, that really impact whether or not somebody can become pregnant. Particularly the B vitamins, as yeah. you know. Yeah. And so yeah. I, yeah. And so I think it's the willingness to, to throw a larger blanket over this topic that is going to open up not only the conversation for a solution, and finding answers, which I think is really what we are all aiming for in this period, is to relieve that feeling of guilt, to relieve the feeling of desperation, because it's not just an emotional conversation and an emotional taxing, but it's also financial tax associated with the use of things like IVF clinics and infertility services that we have to consider um, is part of this picture as well. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece I was thinking about is, yes, we need to start earlier because almost 50% of people are pregnant before they know it, you know? And so we need to have that kind of, uh, we also know that there's huge impact that can be achieved in the preconception time period. It doesn't have to be enduring your entire life. So this also puts it firmly into the court of those persons who are in the healthcare fields of lifestyle and coaching and nutrition and in a collaborative model with their um, health, other healthcare providers. It is definitely a primary care sort of an emphasis that's going to get us the best fertility basis, and uh, we can solve an awful lot by by taking care of those basic needs: the micronutrients that's missing, the genomics that might have some vulnerabilities, the microbiomics, just an understanding of how they are going to be doing their lifestyle, um, environmental exposures. There's a lot that can be ticked off and are modifiable. I mean, it's an optimistic, forward-leaning sort mm -hmm. of an experience experience and the more information we gather. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, I've been so inspired by your work as a primary care doctor who works mostly with women who are trying to get pregnant. And a message that I've been saying for a long time is we should really plan for preconception like we plan for our wedding. I mean, isn't that funny that we'll take a year or two to plan for our wedding, but when we decide we want to get pregnant, we wanted to get pregnant yesterday. Right. It makes these conversations pretty tough about well, you know, we have this pre-conception time frame where we're most susceptible to things like protein malnutrition and methyl donor deficiencies and environmental toxicant exposure. So uh, selfishly, I guess I'm wondering how you have that conversation with patients when they want to get pregnant and they want to get pregnant right away. How do you frame that um, discussion about, well, this is actually is something we should approach with mindfulness and thoughtfulness and maybe a little patience. 
Good question. As always, these conversations are so individuated. If we have somebody who is rushing at it, <laughs> you know, who just cannot be dissuaded, then we will accommodate that. But if we have the opportunity, um, we will take the moment and get ourselves some real personalized care. Mm -hmm. As you know, we have this Grow Baby project that we've been working on for a while. And so that that is what we do is we will analyze them uh, in, in all of those different systems and uh, and then personalize that as we can. But it, yeah. Well, and I, I think so much of this is bringing awareness to the fact that to decrease these common birth outcomes that have some adverse association with long-term, short and long-term health outcomes, or to decrease the prevalency or the risk of some of the maternal conditions that we're so worried about that do help predict some of these birth outcomes. We actually have to talk about this. You, you, you asked the question, what, what is that origin story? It's in the preconception time period. Primarily, there is lots that we can continue to do that's modifiable in the pregnancy time period. However, you know, and I think in this, it was a very recent multi-country study that cited that in order to decrease things like low birth weight, stunting, um, fetal growth restriction, we have to consider the nutritional status and the, the, the preconception or maternal pre-pregnancy weight and BMI. And those have the, the, the most impact on those birth outcomes that now we now know have really long-term adverse vulnerability association. And so, so much of this is bringing awareness to that conversation. I don't think we know yet that, that we have to think about pregnancy health, childhood health, adolescent adulthood health as a preconception conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Having said that, we also know that interventions um, that are instituted have a, um, a genetic effect, have a genetically modifying transcription effect within hours of, of implementation. So if we, you know, comparing saturated versus unsaturated fat diets and looking at the different shifts that, that occur in the inflammasome and, and there, that genetic piece of it, we can, we can shift those within about six hours. We know that a microbiome shifts within hours as well. And so that gives us great hope and optimism that, that if we are starting, <laughs> we are starting now, we will have a, a positive trajectory. We also know that that plasticity time period extends for years after birth. And so we have an opportunity to have a post-transcriptional epigenetic effect as well. It's all quite optimistic. It is. Yeah. And if we are able, and honestly, it's the, it's the education and the support and the continued um, touch points of care that allow this conversation to happen in an empowered way. You know, I think if we just plop a single topic on someone's lap to say, you know, you really should have been thinking about this three to six months ago. That just immediately and instantaneously feels disempowering, just like the conversation in pregnancy of don't gain too much weight and your, your, your BMI is too high, but yet there's not a solution or a roadmap to how to go about solving those that is standardized, let alone able to be implemented because of the time constraints associated with the, the nuances that, the, that this conversation requires. And so it is really, um, Leslie and I, over the, the course of the past decade together, have really come to understand that it, it is a, if we want to start shifting the trajectory of this conversation toward preventative measures to improve 
pregnancy health for a lifetime, pregnancy and reproductive health for a lifetime, it's going to require more than one primary care provider. It's going to require nutrition professionals, health coaches, many people, a community approach, just like we understand community-based group medical visits are powerful. Community touch points, community connection is so powerful. As we've really come to understand over the past two years of of this pandemic is that the community really in and of itself changes frequency. And so if we can give another solution or suggest another solution, which integrates a hybrid model, a hybrid care model, we have found that those results appear to be durable and, and long lasting. And we see better results. We see better lifestyle behavioral changes, more consistent changes because there's more people checking in on you saying, Hey, I care about you. You know, so it's that that's what we're hoping. And we all know that, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that what I think happens, I'm I'm thinking back to the question of why is it that people don't show up before to, you know, they they plan their wedding, but they don't plan their pregnancy. And I think their, their conception, I think it's because they are laboring under the misconception that there's nothing they can do about it, Mm -hmm. that this is what they've got. Well, we couldn't be farther from the truth. And it's that nugget of information that gives us such optimism is that if we we know that we have modifiable issues here that can change their fertility and the quality of their pregnancy and the trajectory of the health of their offspring for generations, mm-hmm. that's a powerful message <clears throat> that we need to hear <laughs> a little earlier. Yeah. You know, so policy needs to be shifted that way, grassroots. Reach needs to be shifted that way. This is an optimistic, modifiable, empowering message. And the, the conversation where of, of the teamness of it yes. of really <clears throat> needs to, to, to sit at the forefront of that conversation. I, I don't mean team just by providers. I also mean teamness as in a couple and a significant other. <laughs> I mean, the, the male partner needs to be a part of this if there's a traditional couple involved, we have to have a full scope conversation. I was able with Dr. Michael Stone to do a deep dive into male preconception health and male infertility. And I was shocked at how quickly sperm DNA fragmentation can change with simple lifestyle changes. I mean, it is a 400 fold improvement just simply by adopting yoga practice. I mean, yet, at the same time, if you're over 35 as a male, you are going to directly impact, impact whether or not your partner has things like an increased risk of gestational hypertension. So knowing your age and its impact on not only your baby, but also the impact that you're going to have directly on your spouse or your significant other. So much of this has to do with awareness and education and then a roadmap to a solution, yeah. right? Um, because I think I say this all the time, Leslie probably gets not, you know, annoyed with me saying it, but we have to be good stewards of information. It's simply knowing information is not going to get us to a place where we can we can act upon it. We have to have those people or those tools in place that help support along the way um, and, and integrate along the way um, as personalized and individuated as possible. So it's, but it's a hopeful conversation. I, this all sounds so... <laughs> It's really a hopeful conversation because there's so much that we can do about this, but but it requires a a different set of eyes and ears and a willingness amongst all of us to shift how we are having this conversation and when we are having it. Leslie alarms everybody when she says we should be thinking about reproductive health at puberty at the age of menstruation, (laughs) which shocks everybody's socks off. But the truth of it is, is that she's not wrong. 
because when we think about the the significant hormonal changes that happen, the significant needs of a teenage pregnancy versus those of an adult woman, right? Those are those are dramatically different. Um, and so I I I have grown to welcome that statement when it, I just alarmed everybody at first when she said it. <laughs> Well, I, this is definitely a message of empowerment. That's what I'm taking away. And Emily, I've actually heard you say before when you were speaking about birth outcomes that we're at this place where we, we no longer need to accept this notion that there's nothing we can do. We know better than that. And I feel the same exact way about fertility. And I've even in the last couple of years have shifted away in most cases from using the term infertility to subfertility, because I think that better reflects what I really see in my practice of fertility being a continuum and there being multiple factors that are influencing that spectrum. And oftentimes we can shift that. So I just, I really appreciate the way that you're framing this of we can assemble this collaborative care team. And really this is a message of hope and encouragement and empowerment. It is exactly right. It absolutely is. But I, you know, However, I, I don't know if you found this, Kalia, but we we still do not have, I mean, well, actually, as of 2020, but it in 2020, we still did not have a standardized way that we approach nutrition for pregnancy in this country. 2020, it was just made. This preventative task force guide was just made. I mean, and how long have we been getting pregnant in this country? I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh, so I, I just went... You know, so it, it feels to use a sports analogy or a sports metaphor, excuse me, it's like we're, we're swinging off our back foot a little bit here. It's not for lack of caring. And I think that that really needs to be heard. It's not because people don't want to help. It's because there's a fear associated with it or a time constraint associated with this conversation. Or like I said, there's not a standard way to enter this conversation across the board, across many associations where we've all agreed. We still cannot agree about how to approach pregnancy the best way, because guess what we figured out in our decade of doing this? And I realize we're a very small entity here, but we've been doing it consistently for a long time, is that it's because it is going to be the nutrigenomics conversation, the metabolomics conversation, all the omics conversation of personalization that is going to launch us into that space where we can find a better standardization of this very nuanced but important detail with how do we approach nutrition? How do we individualize nutrients? How do we individualize lifestyle? And it's all going to change depending on things that we all we, we do talk about, but we're not quite sure how to just shift it toward the right answer for the person sitting in front of us. And so um, over the course of this time period where we've been doing this, we've personalized based on, yes, pre-pregnancy BMI, yes, gestational weight gain, but even gestational weight gain is not a standardized measurement tool in pregnancy. Is that interesting? Because it requires more time. And then it requires, oh, I'm watching you gain more weight than you ought to or not enough. And I don't know what to do about it. So then we stop measuring. We stop asking. We, we contract versus open up to what are the possibilities and options here and how do I best help you? So the pre-pregnancy BMI gestational weight gain, but it's also whether or not that person has a, a, a prior, what's their medical history? What is their current medical or the medical conditions and vulnerabilities, what are, you know, and so we start individualizing and all of a sudden it feels so big, but I think that that is where we have to start personalizing using these tools as much as possible. And this is what where functional medicine um, 
thrives. That's right. The systems approach. It's that systems approach that is interconnected. And that when you pull on one tether or when you pull on one string of the puppet, you are going to have a different level of expression. And that's a good thing. We don't have to be scared of that. Yeah. We, but, it, but it does mean that we are going, but it does mean that these single intervention and these single nutrient interventions are powerful. But what happens when we have the multifactorial systems approach or the multifactorial interventions that we know are, have shown us, right, Leslie? Time and time again, that it's not the single in, uh, nutrient intervention that is most powerful. It's when we approach it at the same time in a continuum, right. in a symbiosis, um, and in that balanced way. That's exactly right. We don't have to get everything right. We just have to get some of it right. Mm -hmm. and, and that's generally, we get great results that way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. physiological redundancy is a very inspiring thing. Useful thing. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, I love that our bodies are one big biochemical reaction because the cofactors don't really change that much, do they? Yeah. No, how, what those cofactors impact, what the enzymes are doing, what the substrates, what, what the requirements are. The, those all kind of have a recipe. They do. So we focus so, on yeah. a few key micronutrients, a few key gene variants. We can't wait till we can focus on a little bit of um, more advanced genomics, but they're not, we're not quite there yet. We use history and story to give us an idea about the microbiome. And, um, and we do some epidemiology, for example, recognizing that bacterial vaginosis is an issue for 40% generally, but like 60% of black and Hispanic women in the US, these data come from the US as it turns out. And so we know that those persons are more likely to struggle with infertility or miscarriages or preterm birth if they actually got pregnant. And that there are some modifiable things we can do anticipating that issue, or we can test for it if we if they fit that in a demographic and, and then be able to intervene with targeted uh, probiotic interventions. If they have a recurrent miscarriage history, we can look at particular genes, you know, the progen receptor, we can look at TCN2, we can, and we can have specific interventions for those as well. We can pick, we can pick a nutrient and lifestyle interventions that can reach around to that. We can find stories in their PCOS and their endometriosis and recognizing that there are toxic manipulation there. There's, um, there is, weight and inflammatory um, manipulation that can take place in a, and it's all very nicely successful and empowering. Well, I think that was the perfect lead into my next question. You talked about sometimes it's, we really wanna take this individualized approach, but there's so much going on and we have complex cases. And I mean, humans are complex and it's easy to get overwhelmed at times. And that's when I feel so fortunate that we have functional medicine tools like the timeline and the matrix that allows us to map out what is happening with these body systems. So when you're using the functional medicine timeline or the matrix, and you're looking at someone's health trajectory that really starts in their preconception timeframe, uh, which lifestyle factors, what we call the personalized modifiable lifestyle factors, which I think in and of itself is such an empowering term, they're modifiable, right? We can do something about it. Which of those modifiable lifestyle factors do you see as being really important for women who are at higher risk for, um, you know, gestational hypertension and preeclampsia and pregnancy loss? I would love to hear you've 
talked a little bit about lifestyle factors already, but I think it's so important. I wanted to capture that a little bit more intentionally. Yeah. There, there was a, an excellent expert review that was published just in this year. Um, and I think it's important first to say that, the, that that research does not point to one specific diet that does the best job at decreasing things like gestational hypertension or preeclampsia or gestational diabetes. However, there are some very excellent general, general nutrition pieces of advice that we, we have all come to understand as um, the Mediterranean diet. So, but, but I think it's also important to say that when we are considering lifestyle choices associated with these maternal conditions, such as gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, that we have to consider other things besides nutrition, such as smoking, drug use, alcohol use. And these all, Leslie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, these all take a lot of time with people to ensure that we are not just taking away something that they have come to use as a comfort measure most often, okay? And I think we have to really obliterate the judgment associated with a lifestyle choice that might not be conducive to a goal or might put somebody at an increased vulnerability because it's the why behind somebody choosing that. We have to get to that question. Why are they doing it? Why are the, why are the nutrient needs or the nutrition needs not being met? Is it the food desert? Is it ge the geographical location? So if you start to look at what are the other lifestyle factors, we have to consider also zip code. I think we are starting to understand that vulnerability of disease or vulnerability of poor health outcomes is associated with where you live. And that's a re it's really hard to, to go about approaching a detoxification lifestyle poor food plan when we're not able to mitigate the exposure risks to begin with, right? Or the toxic exposure risks to begin with. So I'm going to come back around to your question and answering what are some things that we, we look for to decrease maternal conditions. It really is using a low glycemic Mediterranean diet style approach. Um, there is good data to suggest things like, like paleo diet. Uh, does it meet some of the vitamin D calcium needs that pregnancy requires? A vegan diet, there are significant nutrient needs that are um, not present in that diet. Um, where we have to ensure that if someone is a vegetarian, that we, we meet adequate protein needs aside from dairy sources as much as possible. Um, and then talking about the quality of those foods that come into, into their life versus the quantity of those foods. Um, you know, I, so this is where the individualization really um, reigns clear for me is that I, I, in fact, I really push against the notion that a food is good or bad. It's how does it interact with you and what are your needs at the time, you know? And so Mediterranean diet, low glycemic index, higher fiber as much as possible. But then what do you do about it when you can't afford those foods or you don't have access to those foods? And so one of the, the biggest reasons why we have created all the tools that we use is because we, we meet with a 50% Medicaid population. So we meet with women who are utilizing SNAP benefits, WIC benefits. And so we've had to adopt everything and adapt everything that we've done and talk about to the resources that are available, um, the financial resources that are available for the person or the family as much as possible. Because that is, again, that's another layer of empowerment to, to, to ensure 
it, it does no good to say, oh, you should eat a Mediterranean diet. And people are going, I can only buy tuna when I'm pregnant or, and not even when I'm breastfeeding with WIC benefits. So the idea that I'm supposed to eat eight to 12 ounces of low mercury fish in pregnancy, and that's the recommendation, you might as well just tell me I got to shoot for the moon. You know, so as we go about how do we solve for that? What are the other sources of omega-3 fatty acids that allow us to, to help meet those needs? Can we meet those needs in nutrient um, supplementation or prenatal vitamins? And then it brings the conversation into the quality of those, right? Because what we do know is although there's not a standardized way to manage things like gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and gestational diabetes, there's really good, strong data um, the quality of evidence, I think for researchers and scientists, they may tell me that the quality of evidence is not quite there and, and they're not wrong. But what we do know is that from other data, the emphasis of this Mediterranean diet, low GI um, approach really does the best job at meeting the macro and micronutrient needs of pregnancy, or at least putting us on a similar playing field to begin with. And then other pieces of that personalized, modified lifestyle piece is um, stress management. Everything we have to ask for has to be doable, right? But simple things. So if, we're, if our goal is to, we, we live in a, in a high stress environment. Many people do. Many people's cortisol is contributing to their fertility capabilities. And so simple things, uh, music, Aromatherapy, aromatherapy, yes. reflexology. It, they have great data, you yeah. know, Tai Chi, yoga. Those are small things that make a significant reduction in uh, cortisol levels and, and contribute to a very a much more positive fertility hormone balance mm -hmm. um, with those pieces alone. Activity, I, I'm, I'm, you know, yoga and Tai Chi can act in, in that. Um, in that space as well, but looking for the sedentary lifestyle. Is this a, a person who can get out and go for a walk safely? You know, um, what are our alternatives? Do we need to think of something indoor? Do we need to think something within a community setting that is a safer um, event and, and arrange around that? Sleep hygiene, a very important restorative moment, right? And so those, but those um, keys to good sleep hygiene are the same pregnant or unpregnant or preconception or at all times. And so we reemphasize that even those persons who have some difficulty, there are pieces that can be put together in a, in a plan that makes them uh, have more restorative sleep experience. And all this focuses down to an improved immune, improved immune function, improved inflammatory balance, improved estrogen progesterone level uh, balances, and uh, uh, avoidance of those toxins. Or, or if we can't avoid them, because many people by their zip code cannot avoid them, then what do we do with our micronutriture, our filtration systems within home, our exposures that we can manipulate, such as what products do we use personally, what um, using those things that are on that um, website. Environmental that working group. group. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's where the bottom of the matrix shines, right? It's like Lots there's so many doors to enter in. And oftentimes when the, the that idea of a placebo effect comes into play, that is where you're going to feel the most empowerment, when someone can choose what they wish, right? I think I would yes. best like to enter in on stress or on food or on sleep or, you know, or on relationships or on communication. Um, when 
you create that collaboration and you allow somebody to choose where they think they're going to be the most successful and you do this just one thing concept, um, let's start with just one thing. It's Although we know that it's multifactorial and these interventions become multifactorial, I cannot take away from the fact that when someone can choose one thing to start addressing a change in their health, it builds upon itself exponentially. But you got to remind them that they can do that one thing, right? That they have the power to do that one thing. All of my clients just roll their eyes at me when I tell them, did you do your toothbrush tune-ups today? Because you can brush your teeth and do squats. You can brush your teeth and do wall sits. You can brush your teeth and do leg lifts. You can, you can stand on one leg while you fold laundry. You can you know, take two steps up the stairs and versus just one. You know, I, there's just so many little things that we can choose to do and reminding people that they have those choices all the time. Man, that is, that's where the power lies. And if we're talking about that ongoing modifiability, you all understand this too, that when you get one thing done successfully, the next one's easier. Yep. And the next one after that is easier. And the next one after that, and after you've done, <clears throat> when somebody's aiming to be pregnant, when they want to be fertile, then there's just no more plastic time period too to achieve some really significant lifestyle changes that if maintained over three or four months, they are more likely to happen than they're not likely to happen. And so it just becomes an empowering thing for that person and their sense of well-being. As we build on well-being, it's it's a great resource, a great source of resilience. I love when you were talking about kind of choosing your entry point. It felt like a choose your own adventure. Yes. You know, we're choosing our entry point and we're choosing this lifestyle adventure that we're going on together. Yeah. I, it just made me happy to hear you talk about it like that. And thinking about the modifiable lifestyle factors, the, another piece that I wanted to bring forward again was this concept of community because relationships, as you mentioned, are at the bottom of the matrix. They're part of those lifestyle factors. And I think we know that behavior change happens in community. And so that's an important part that I never want to forget about when I'm choosing an entry point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you, I, we all need cheerleaders. I, I cannot tell you. It's like when you watch a little kid and you, one of the most important things you can do is make sure your eyes light up when you see a child. It's the same thing for an adult. It's it so just, true. it matters. You can't, we can't take away from these moments. It's like, I see you and I'm smiling and good job. You know, it's like, I, my, my husband, he's like, he went, oh my gosh. But a woman was running up a big hill in Ashland, Oregon, which we're, we live in a mountain town, right? And so she was running up this really steep hill with her stroller and obviously a toddler sized person in it. And I rolled my window down. I was like, keep going. You're doing awesome. Because in that moment, I mean, she's obviously struggling, but that's really what we need. All of us intrinsically yes. need someone to just spontaneously say, you're doing a good, good job. job. That's exactly right. Reinforce. I'm going to keep being here telling you you're doing a good job. And then let's adjust when it doesn't feel like it's working. I think this, it's like that fixed versus growth mindset. Right. So we, we have to be willing to, to, to remain flexible. That is. And if again, going back to the pandemic, if that is if that is my lesson in this, it's that it's we have the ability to be way more flexible than we ever thought we were. Mm -hmm. So let's emphasize that. And so mm -hmm. these entry points, 
yes, choose your own adventure. I know I feel like we need some like drumming cool music to like like a game board or something, right? I, I really feel like this is an opportunity to allow someone to feel excited about the changes that they get to make because they are going to feel better. And we know that, but they don't yet. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that they, you know, they, they will, they do. Yeah. That belief that it will be better. That yeah. hope, you know, that's, that's our, our powerful, that's our power. Yeah. Our superpower. And we cite this JAMA article a lot. It's just, it's not enough to just give access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Although the Affordable Care Act allowed more women to receive pregnancy health care and to get pregnancy health care. It did not change our outcomes significantly in these birth phenotypes and these maternal conditions. They are continuing to worsen in this nation. So then it's we and then our then that for us launches our core focus into we have to change the care we give, not taking away from the excellent standard of care that exists. I think it's really I want, we say this message a lot. Standard of care has saved countless lives. Standard of care is excellent. Standard of care in its implementation is not personalized, doesn't allow the provider to have the time to individuate even if they desire to do so, right? The construct of the system makes it less successful when we are looking at a more complex systems way of thinking. And a collaborative yeah, way of thinking. thinking. Yeah. And so I, I just wanna say, we have to change the care we give, not because standard of care is not excellent, but because we are still not seeing the results change even though we are still applying standard of care. So that's, that's where <clears throat> the, the idea of a collaboration and the idea of more touch points of care and the idea of integrating community and group medical education becomes so important because you actually, what you realize is that the, as a primary care provider is that you actually get to expand your compassion and your care and, and, help, and allow other people to help you do that. Mm-hmm. That building of community yeah. again. Yeah. A different piece of it. Yeah. Versus having oh. it lift all on your shoulders or land all on your shoulders. As we are feeling so inspired now to be cheerleaders, both in our personal and our professional lives, I want to make sure that we take a few minutes for you to talk to us about the Grow Baby Life Project and all the advocacy you've done for addressing preterm births. This is such important work. Will you tell us about that for a few minutes? Let us know what you've been up to. Yes. Do you want to start? Sure. I'll okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. We're all very excited about yeah. this. Right? <laughs> um, what we, as you know, we've been doing this grow baby focus and and um, at a standard of care plus model for an awful long time. And we've had yes, great results in reducing our miscarriage rates, improving our fertility rates, and reducing the um, concerns that are going to have generational effects: gestational hypertension gestational diabetes. Um, we have fewer small term births, um, or small for gestational age babies, fewer large for gestational age babies, fewer um, pre, yeah, preterm births, the very important one that give us that a better health outcome for generations. And we now have the opportunity to put this into a completely um, uh, Medicaid population, which people should read as a high risk. We start at a socioeconomically high risk space and be able to take that standard of care plus, but add in all of the lifestyle and um, 
and uh, dietary uh, components personalized based on genomics, based on micronutriture, based on um, histories that we have taken, based on the, a good uh, personal history, as well as risks such as ACE scores and, and uh, depression scales and anxiety scales and, and that sort of thing. Targeting down, putting that into a group um, setting, targeting that down into a population that would have no access to this. And our anticipation is that we will be able to have, again, a, a very reduced rate. We're expecting um, a significant reduction in those preterm births and a great empowerment for those uh, women. We feel extraordinarily proud of this moment in the Grove Baby Life Project um, story. Our vision has always been to um, enact and change or help to change maternal um, health care policy in the United States and in the globe. Um, and, and it really is, is a precedent setting partnership with Molina uh, uh, Healthcare. They're a managed care organization that, um, in, that exists in 17 different states and they cover medic, the Medicaid population. And they have uh, basically given us an opportunity in the state of Nevada to apply our systems-based Grow Baby Nutrition um, Standard of Care Plus or this, this hybrid pregnancy care model into a 100% Medicaid population. And so we are, we could not be more thrilled. We have amazing partners. Um, Metagenics is coming into play, DNA Life, Omega Quant Analytics, um, and, and Molina Healthcare. And we are honored by people who, who are starting to understand and to believe that this is the way that we are going to see changes occur. You know, in our own <clears throat> data that we have been collecting since 2011, we do have a peer reviewed published study in Global Advances of Health and Medicine for our first initial cohort of 110 women. But in our longitudinal data from 2011 to 2017, we do see that our numbers needed to treat for preterm birth is 17. So for every 17 births, we can anticipate one less preterm birth. You know, we have a composite score of 24 when you when you um, put together small for gestational age, gestational hypertension, and um, pregnancy-induced, uh, uh, yeah, right? Gestational diabetes and yeah. gestational hypertension and small for gestational age of 24. So we're starting to see that these birth outcomes and maternal morbidities that we all care very much about to ensure we decrease the prevalence, we, we are starting to see a durability with this application model. So we have an opportunity to, to show that we can that we can scale that, number one, and reproduce it. Yeah, and translate it into a different culture. Because that is, yeah. it's, it's all about personalization, right? So we can see what are what's their food sourcing look like? What does their culture dictate? What are their supports in terms of their you know, uh, stress management and, you know, and all, and, uh, and then be able to take that into a very mm -hmm. codified, personalized way, something doable for them to build their community and uh, end up with better results. Yeah. And we anticipate having those study results, you know, in, in 12 to, to 18 months yeah. from now. So um, stay tuned on that account. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. So growbabylifeproject.org is where you can find out more about that mm -hmm. and about what we're doing and to, to see how you can support. And we're also starting to upload our educational modules there um, for providers as well to kind of start learning in this way and, and to, to, to just explore this option as a way of thinking uh, about developmental programming of health and disease. Yeah.
I think anybody who's followed your journey just feels so excited and inspired about what you've been doing. I'm like, I'll be going to the website and signing up for all of the offerings immediately. (laughs) For someone like me, who's in a primary care setting in an insurance-based model, do you have any advice for how we can start to even slowly implement some of these pillars that you have found in your work and really affect the health of our our unique populations we're working with? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, Our educational models are a great place to start because they give a very, very excellent foundation. And then what we have been doing um, for folks that want to to implement more is have them reach out to us directly, info at growbabyhealth.com or info at growbabylifeproject.org. And then what we do is we help walk them through these um, intervention tools that we utilize in clinics. So it's the intake forms that we utilize protocols with a small P, as Dr. Christy Hughes likes to say. Um, because we, we know that protocols only get us so right. far, right? And we have to individuate <laughs> even base. beyond that. Right. Yeah. So uh, protocols for preconception, male and female health or subfertility. Um, and then what happens in the setting of pregnancy. And, and we, we have created, we have 14 different core food plans based off of the IFM cardiometabolic core food plan of 2010. So I always like to, to give a nod to IFM for that because it is what we've utilized. We've, we've uh, adopted parts of the methylation diet and lifestyle for Caracas Joe for our one carbon metabolism plan. Um, and so we have, I think about 80 different clinical tools that folks can utilize and you just have to reach out to us. And then what we do is we kind of create an individualized plan, just like we individuate for a patient or a client, we individualize for the needs of the clinician as well. And so they may want to start just with the educational modules and that's it. They want to do educational modules and intervention tools. Um, we also have our um, our own prenatal pack. We we utilize our DNA Life Grow Baby Genetic Test. Um, you know, there's there's lots of education around the DNA Life Genomic Test now, so you can go online and find that as well. So just honestly, reach out to us. We're pretty accessible people. We try our best. However, I have to say. It's just Leslie and I and Dr. Michael Stone, who is somewhere in this building. Okay, so we try our best. We're very busy, but we really do try to reach out no matter what. So if you're a provider, look at our educational models. If you want more than that, let us know. And then we create a plan based off what your needs are, because we know that when you personalize something, people do better. Well, I think you've shared so many insights and really given us an idea of how Functional medicine is uniquely suited to really support this transgenerational health. That's our shared goal. And I feel this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's just been a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you you so much. much. It's a great opportunity. (laughs) IFM's annual international conference is coming up soon. Learn about the latest advancements in functional medicine research and what they mean for your practice. Join us June 4th and 5th for a reimagined online experience. I'll see you there. Visit aic.ifm.org for more information.